everyone, and welcome to the first PyData Manchester podcast. My name is Jennifer Stark. I'm Joseph Allen. I'm John Carney. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to PyData. <laughs> Perfect. So we are the Manchester chapter of PyData. Uh, why are we running PyData Manchester? Why are we running a PyData Manchester podcast? The tech industry in Manchester, just since I've been away the last 10, 8 or 10 years, has really, really grown. It was really exciting for me to come back here and see what was going on. Um, there's a lot of startups and new tech ventures. So um, getting into the tech field here was awesome. Um, and starting a PyData meetup seemed like a logical step. Mm-hmm. If you're in the tech industry, Manchester is a great place to be. We've got Booking Go, Spare Room, Auto Trader, and Co Computer Love. Media City, including the BBC with their own data science team, are here. There's also a flourishing tech startup scene including Hello Soda and Peak AI. We also have members of the big four with Microsoft and Google, and soon Amazon will open their first UK corporate office outside of London for software dev, machine learning, and R&D. A lot of people you end up meeting are still in academia. It's very academic-focused. still in academia. Yeah, As if they're <laughs> bound to leave. <laughs> no, but really, that's another great thing about Manchester. We have University of Manchester, Metropolitan University, and Salford University all very close together. Um, the university, the Man- Manchester University, is working together with industry with their data science institute. Um, so there's a whole wealth of um, people doing really, really interesting things with data in in Greater Manchester that we want to engage with. Yeah, and I think it's ideal for everyone to have the opportunity to get involved with more people around. Because yeah. when we first started this, it wasn't we Joe and I weren't clear how many people were even data scientists in Manchester, yeah. whether, you know, there was 10 of us or maybe there was 100. Or, we just had no way of knowing. Yeah. Our first event had 12 people show up and then our second had two. And then yeah. the next one had 35. So it's it's been all over the place. Some of good, thing we, yeah, <laughs> good thing we didn't give up at two as well. Um, <laughs> historically, we've run a few different styles of events, workshops, tutorials, lightning talks, as well as some panels. We recently ran a panel at Code Computer Love titled Converting Data into Value with Various Data People Based from Manchester, uh, such as Liam Galliers, the, a web analytics consultant at Code Computer Love, Kaylee Haynes, data science team leader at Peak, David Hoyle, lead data scientist and head of data science at AutoTrader, and Bertel Hart, head of data science at Booking Go. Both Bertel and David recommended the same book, Predictions Machines. See that in the show notes. Uh, We had a great mix of differing opinions and some great audience participation too. One particular question I remember was, what is bad data? And I could see the cogs wearing in Bertel's head. A day later, Bertel had written a blog post with the same title. That'll also be linked in the show notes. That's the question that stuck with me because I think we've had that discussion a few times before. It's something that, you know, something I've started doing out of habit in Pandas is every time I read a data set, I do dataframe.info, dataframe.describe because... I, I used to just assume that, you know, there'd be no nulls in the data, there'd be, everything would be in reasonable ranges, but I don't think there's been a time yet where there hasn't been nulls or there hasn't been something out of bounds for some reason, and there's so many techniques to yeah. deal with that. Uh, yeah, Bertel's post um, is really good at highlighting a lot of the different techniques to come up with, a lot of techniques to solve some of the more frequent issues, but he also highlights a lot of really edge cases that I hadn't thought about but definitely occur. And it, I've kind of used it for um, since since he written it as a kind of reference of, if I'm building this data pipeline, what do I have to watch out for? Mm. What do I have to make sure I can clean? 
just you know for the eighty percent rule of how do I make sure it's good enough for most of my use cases because there's an awful lot of weird data errors you're not going to catch them all, catch them all but data and um, Bertil does a very good job of detailing a lot of them right there. Yeah, I think a lot of the things that people get caught out on is when they and I do this as well when when you're used to dealing with cleaning data um, for every data set and it is going to have different issues associated with it. Um, or you could be using the same data set but apply it to something different. So your mm. assumptions have to change because the outcome is different. So there's a lot to think about with with what is good data because it can be different mm. depending on your goal or the data set itself, when it was sampled, how big the samples are. Like, yeah, there's lots to think about. Yeah, definitely. I've found myself in habits before when we've done similar, um, different analyses on the same base data set, and it's very easy to forget the core of what you're doing. And with that comes a lot of issues, not just in data cleanliness, but overall utility of the model. It's best to remember that sooner, um, you know, sooner in the process rather than later on. <laughs> so November right. meetups. Uh, we had two really good talks, two really interesting talks um, from Tom, Tom Collingburn and Su Yao Chen. Um, it didn't really plan this, but it worked out very nicely. Both had similar themes, so we ended up with natural language processing. Tom Collinburn Tom entitled Your Call is Important to Us. Please hold while we analyze this, focusing on topic modeling of customer service calls. And Su Yao Chen um, on shift, shifting from multi class classification models to multitask learning. So, Tom Collinburn is a senior data analyst at AutoTrader. Um, so if you've not heard of Also Trader, really big in the UK, started off as um, a magazine, basically um, helping link people who wanted to buy a car with people who were selling the cars privately. Um, now it's transformed onto an online marketplace, which is one of the biggest in the UK for um, buying and selling cars. Yeah, so obviously as part of that, like a lot of e-commerce um, companies are marketplace companies, and an awful lot of data going on with that. And people write, the, uh, write their advertisements for the car so there's an awful lot of information there in natural language um, yeah in natural language that could be passed part, part of Tom's job is um, working in the business to business um, sector of the company which helps develop data products for internal external use so what kind of scenarios did Tom work on was he classifying he was classifying customer support calls depending okay. on the language they use so it's audio was, was it so yeah, he worked in a number of different things. Um, NLP is one of the key areas. But then looking at, um, I think he was talking about how some of his other work is about um, what kind of people buy what kind of cars. Okay. Um, different valuations. So, I can't remember if this was Tom or the broader or software data science team, but understanding key, um, you know, valuations of cars so that they can help um, buyers and sellers try, try and oh, sorry, sellers more than buyers, um, at what price they should sell their cars at. That's kind of some of the background. This project, um, himself or Tom, was working on passing natural language from customer supports. Not calls per se, but um, logs. So I'm not sure. I think some of them may have been transcribed, but some of them from email support as well. Um, as well. Gotcha. Tom was a self-described Python novice, having more of a background than ever. Basically, he was de um, demonstrating how he could create a short pipeline to start off passing, tagging, and cleaning unstructured text putting the text into a structured format so they could do some modelling, performing latent Dirichlet allocation, apologies for that massacre of Dirichlet, Dirichlet, visualising the data and the results. So non-data types from across the um, from across the business, 
can consumes Tom's analysis and use it to inform business decisions and get value out of it. Su Yao Chen is a natural language processing data scientist at Hello Soda. Um, I only found this out recently um, at her talk, but Hello Soda, Soda stands for social data. So they do an awful lot of parsing data from different online sources, from social channels, can understand what people are talking about, what the sentiment is, stuff like that. Kind of, uh, Su Yao's background is um, in, in a PhD in marketing analytics and data science from Manchester Uni. Um, and she's worked on projects such as multilingual customer interest modelling, personality modelling, and social sentiment modelling. Sue's talk was titled Shift from Multi-Class Classification Models to Multitask Learning. Now, I hadn't heard of multitask learning before this talk at all, so news to me, and it seemed like a really cool approach. So basically, um, with normal machine learning, we care about optimising for a particular metric, so figuring out one cost function, or one business problem, assigning a cost function to it, and then optimising against it. Tweaking and um, tweaking hyperparameters, um, optimising for optimising hyperparameters, tweaking features, the standard process, but there's usually one single cost function. One of the interesting things with multitask learning is it can share representations between related tasks, so you can say, well, when you want to achieve one business goal, it can be made up of smaller goals, assigning cost functions to those separately, and then bringing it all together to give a more accurate model that can help solve your, your business problem more accurately. So that sounds a little bit like ensemble learning. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, a few people asked after that, and the way I, the way, the way I was thinking of it was when you're using ensemble uh, modeling you're using multiple different models just together to try and uh, achieve a best optimization or a best model to fit a single cost function as far as i understand it multitask learning is having multiple different um cost functions and bringing them together i see okay so yeah it's really um really interesting talks and um, we're hoping to have both of those presentations up hopefully by the end of november on our github awesome so yeah, it's really cool how we um, how Tom and Sue both uh, both got involved with us. So Tom works for Alto Trader with David Hoyle, who was part of our um, our meetup earlier, um, as Joe mentioned earlier on, who's part of the panel with head of data science. David also actually came to our very first event before we were even PyData, when it was just a pub meetup. So we've sort of got a long-standing relationship with him. So it it, it was sort of you know kind of a favor from David. Let's get let's get Tom into this. Uh, talk giving circle basically. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, Tom was saying earlier um, beforehand it was his very first talk. Yeah. Um, you would not know it. Yeah, he was he was really nervous before, and then on the day he was so calm, collected, and and gave a really great talk. So it was which great. Is, Hopefully, see him soon again. Yeah, yeah, which is even more impressive considering the audience was the biggest audience we've ever had. About eighty or so people. Yeah, about eighty people. Yeah. I saw Tsuyao speak at. Her Plus Data, which is a women's data meetup um, run by Rachel Ainsworth here in Manchester. So I saw her speak earlier this year. And so it was really exciting to have her present her work at a Pi Data Manchester meetup. And also a big thank you to Autotrader for hosting that event. Catering was incredible. I kept saying it on the night. Great catering. <laughs> We always get this joke with meetups that it's always beer and pizza, but this place had beer and prosecco and juice and water, and it it wasn't pizza from Domino's or something. It was 
pizza made in-house and on top of that loads of other stuff loads of other options so yeah. it was great yeah, vegetarian options yeah, yeah. It was, and gluten-free and gluten-free yeah. 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 everybody was spoiled in-house catering it was fantastic yeah. look yeah. forward to going there again in yeah. February I guess let's introduce who we are because we just keep uh, I guess stuff. feigning away to <laughs> information about us or where we're working or whatever it is we're doing now so uh, I'm Joe Joe Allen. I've got a computer science and maths degree from Manchester. Uh, it sort of started a pattern of not being very certain on what I wanted to do, so I couldn't decide between computer science and maths, and then I became a front-end developer, and then I became a data scientist, and then I went back to front-end developer, and then now I'm sort of a project manager. Um, so yeah, I don't really know. I'm still kind of interested in data, but it's not my full job, but I still dabble uh, still take part in this event, still do a lot of data science stuff at work. My introduction to data science was that Kaggle Titanic data set that we did in one of our meetups, so that's quite um, sentimental to me. Uh, yeah, who's next? Jennifer? Um, yep, so I um, got my PhD from Manchester in neuroscience, um, and then while I was doing a postdoc in the US, I decided that I didn't, that I really liked the data part and the data viz part. Um, so in pursuit of that, I did a professional master's in information visualization, um, which covered design, graphic design, statistics, and a little bit of programming. Um, I was a bit upset with the lack of stats. I was expecting a bit more. <laughs> so I... Then did a data science, the part-time boot camp, the General Assembly do, um, the one in DC at the time. Um, and then I got a postdoc position in a computational journalism lab. So that's where I really got into using Python for work, for data analysis and scraping um, and using getting data from APIs. Um, and that was just a two-year contract, and then I came back to the UK um, to figure out what to do next. And now I'm the data engineer at Spare Room, um, putting together their first data warehouse and using uh, GCP, Google Cloud Platform, and Apache Beam for, um, for the pipelines. So it's, yeah, it's really great. I really like it. That's the important thing. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it's really, really great. I, I, yeah, I'm really happy. Good. Um, so I'm John Carney. Um, I did my PhD um, in wheat, well, adapting winter wheat to UK climate change um, at the University of Reading. Didn't really expect to ever get into data. Um, most of my friends were programmers when I was growing up, but I didn't really have any background or aptitude into it, also in my magic, but after messing about with some stats packages um, during my PhD, as I'm sure many PhD students do, um, a lot of fiddly settings, there's lots of new um, repeatable tasks, and I thought, well, this is not a good way of doing it from GUI, I'm going to automate it. After messing about with the internal language a little bit, I thought, no, this is just not a, not a sustainable approach. If I'm going to learn something, then I might as well learn something that's going to be useful time and time again. So after bugging a few of my friends and a few of my um, PhD colleagues, I eventually got into Python. Um, and I learned Pandas, and it all kind of started from there. I um, was able to move back to Manchester and after finishing my PhD. Got a job as the, um, a data scientist at lightbeams.com. 
um, made the questionable decision at the time to hire Joe. <laughs> um, we we worked pretty well there. Deployed some um, some big tools, but I think as, again, as ever, anyone who knows who um, who's been the first data scientist in the company, there's an awful lot of hurdles to overcome. The technical details were not the biggest difficulties, um, although they weren't. <laughs> they were still an issue. It's all um, a lot of it was an introduction to politics, um, which you, and this is not to say Lightrooms in, in itself was terrible. It's just one of those things that any business always has, especially when you're looking at um, an existing business starting up with something as in depth and detailed as data science. So. Um, yeah, we worked there, um, put out the uh, th- so the thing I'm most pro- proud of as a data scientist as far as um, the ranking algorithm, which ranks every single search on that website, which Joe and I put together, um, along with the instructor with team. With Dom, Charlie, the, yeah. other, the other guys. Yeah, sure, they were there as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was a team effort. Um, and not just the data science team, it was really important about learning how to work with software engineers, infrastructure engineers, product owners and stakeholders, about people who actually, um, you know, kept, not just count the numbers, but the financial numbers as well, <laughs> most importantly. Um, and then moved on to now start um, one of my own business, doing a bit of data science consultancy, helping local authorities and um, small medium enterprises get started with data science, because I hate myself, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> It's sort of like late rooms taught you how to be a contractor and then you went and became a contractor instead. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a marketable <laughs> skill to yeah. be able to date, um, start up with data science and yeah. deliver value from it. Mm. It's it's fun. And it's, I do enjoy it, but it is also painful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now you know us. Uh, I realise now that we didn't actually introduce what PyData was at the very start. Uh, so anyone have a good brief sentence that will describe what PyData is? PyData is a community for developers and users of open source data tools. Well, yes. Well, like I just came up with that. <laughs> a lot of people ask, is it just Python? Um, and I don't know. Um, we might find out where Pydata came from, the name. But it, uh, it does include R and Julia Lang um, and other open source data analysis languages. So it's not just Python. Um, and I started in R actually, so mm-hmm. same. So did I, annoyingly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's just something about R joining yeah. in into R. No, I liked R, but I like uh, using Python because you can use Python to um, do other stuff as well as data analysis. So it's kind yes. of it's kind of the the lazy approach, I suppose. Efficient. And now a word from our sponsors. Cathcart Associates is a technology recruitment company with offices in Leeds and Manchester, covering all things tech but with an experienced team focusing on data science in the Northwest. We're good at what we do, we understand what our candidates do, and what our clients need, and we really care about making sure you both get what you want. We've been sponsoring Pi Data since its inception, because we're nice guys and we like pizza. Check out our website to get in touch, cathcardassociates.com. That website will be linked in the show notes, and just to append to that message, uh, our very own Jennifer found her most recent job through Cathcard Associates, uh, we truly do see them as the good guys in data recruitment. So if you're looking for a data job in the north, get in touch with them. Okay, so now you know a little bit about what PyData is. Um, Numfocus sponsor PyData. Um, that's not just PyData Manchester, that's PyData Worldwide and the organisation that goes around with it. 
in addition to that, some may say that's even their, their, not even their main mission, um, but their main some of their main work is around um, helping helping to contribute to open source projects around the world, whether that's financial contributions or other ways of helping. Looking at projects like pandas, numpy, jupyter, matplotlib, Julia language itself, um, and to, um, yeah, so we thought it'd be really important to learn a little bit more about NumFocus in an, our very first podcast. So to do that, we've organised to speak to Gina from NumFocus. Yeah, so we have Dr. Gina Halfrich with us today. She's the Communications Director of NumFocus, and we're very excited to speak to her right now. Hi, Gina. Yeah. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Gina. Um, so uh, we have Dr. Gina Halfrich, uh, who is the Communications Director and Program Manager for diversity and inclusion at NumFocus. Hi, Gina, and thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, so, this, uh, so, first of all, um, can you tell us about what PyData is, what is NumFocus, and what's the difference? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, PyData is couple of things and people use it in different contexts so it can be very confusing. Um, when we say PyData is an educational program of NumFocus, what we mean is the PyData community uh, global network of events and meetup chapters. So PyData Manchester being one of them uh, and the other regional conferences all over the world. Uh, and those are supported and um, so, you know, partially paid for <laughs> by NumFocus. Uh, and NumFocus is a nonprofit charity organization based in the United States whose mission is to support uh, long-term sustainability for open source scientific software. And for PyData purposes, that often means data science tools in Python. So that being said, sometimes when someone refers to PyData, what they really are meaning is the collection of data science tools for Python. So it's a bit confusing, <laughs> but all of those together, depending on context, uh, that's what PyData is. Yeah, so we get a lot of questions um, around whether it's is it only for Python or is it for, um, does it include other languages as well? Yeah, so officially, absolutely, uh, are the PyData meetups and events and in general, the community of folks who are coming together to learn about and extend the tooling are definitely more than just Python tools. My observation is that increasingly there's less of a focus on divisions according to language. Um, if you're doing data science, then you're doing data science. Maybe you're doing it in R, maybe you're doing it in Python. Uh, but people, I think, really just want to get together and learn from one another and talk about what they've been doing. Um, so perhaps uh, in practice, that means it's heavily Python when you come to a PyData meeting or event, uh, but by no means exclusively. Um, in addition to R, we start to see more talks and tutorials even lately 
uh, on Julia or Stan, which is for probabilistic programming, for example. So yeah, um, it's definitely not exclusive uh, just to Python as a language. Yeah, we've definitely have, I think we have more Python members, but we've definitely had events where people have been working in R code as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think it's quite interesting as well. People, while people use a variety of PyData tools, and it's focused around scientific computing, it's hard to draw the line between what's scientific computing and what's just regular computing, mm -hmm. what's moving data around and what's doing stuff with data. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot you can do in, with just Unix command line as well, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, Gina, can you tell us more about your role at NumFocus and how you got yourself involved in NumFocus in the first place? I am the communications director at NumFocus, and I also manage our diversity and inclusion program, uh, which is called DISC for short, D-I-S-C, Diversity and Inclusion in Scientific Computing. Uh, so as the communications director, I help uh, facilitate information and communication between a whole variety of folks. Uh, it's really sort of amazing. The NumFocus organization only has five full-time staff at present. And I was thinking about that, how many yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And Very so cool. we really try to, I mean, we try to do more than we can reasonably do, to be perfectly honest, because um, there's so much, but I try to facilitate internal communication amongst all our stakeholders. So that can you know, branch as far as all of our PyData organizers and volunteers. It's the project leadership amongst NumFocus sponsored projects. Um, so NumFocus has five staff members. Um, myself, our executive director, Leah Seidlin, um, our president, Andy Terrell, who um, is performing uh, sort of project director functions um, as part of a grant from the Sloan Foundation. Our project's finance manager, Lynn Brubaker, and our events coordinator, Jim Weiss, who is sort of the man, the man himself, all things PyData. He um, works to support the committees that organize PyData regional events all over the world and is kind of a main um, first responder, I guess, for PyData meetups and people who want to get started or are looking for help. Um, so yeah, that's our team and I'm really proud to have them all as colleagues. NumFocus runs a program, which in many ways is at the heart of our mission, uh, that is called fiscal sponsorship, which is a usually sort of confusing term, which generally just means that we have the ability for open source scientific computing projects to come under the NumFocus umbrella and effectively NumFocus is the legal entity for that project. Mm. And so we refer to those projects that have that status as our sponsored projects. Uh, and so I do a lot of communication with the leadership of the sponsored projects. And then also our diversity and inclusion committee. And then externally, I'm sort of the non-focus head cheerleader. So I'm trying to get the word out about who we are and what we're all about and why the community that uses those tools that we support should become supporters of non-focus so that they can find ways to make sure that those open source tools have a sustainable 
long-term future. And then on the side of diversity inclusion program, I chair a committee of volunteers and they also are geographically diverse, spread out. Um, and we work on a variety of initiatives aimed at helping to continue improving the diversity of our community and making sure that it is a welcoming, friendly, and inclusive place for everybody. Mm. Yeah, that's something that we've um, been trying to get our head around uh, a little bit as well, trying to improve um, how we work as well um, in our roles as organizers. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's something that we've, it's, it's not always easy to try and identify what to do or if we even have an effect. But yeah. I think it's really important we keep doubling down and trying to make sure we active, we're being proactive with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we definitely, you know, I think this is a big topic of conversation in the community lately. Um, I want to sort of specifically call out one of our DISC committee members, Reshma Sheikh, who is active in both Python and our data science communities. And she recently posted a blog sort of trying to marshal some uh, evidence on the hypothesis that, of why the R community seems to be more inclusive than the PyData community. Um, oh, really? Or Python community, rather. Um, at least with regard to uh, women's inclusion. And I think it's quite controversial how the argument was taken, but at the end of the day, it sparked a lot of conversation. And I think that is excellent. So there are you know, people who are in your position, you know, who are running local groups, et cetera, that are now sort of having that opportunity to ask themselves like, yeah, what are we doing? And you know, yeah. maybe we should think about more than just, you know, setting up a venue and a speaker and ordering pizza, you know, so yeah, yeah I, I think it's really great um, that the conversation seems to really uh, be evolving and, and becoming much more robust. Yeah, I mean, um, I did read that that piece today, I think it was linked to one of the slacks. There's an awful lot to think about on um, just kind of an everyday basis on what we can do, including some of which is simply just you know, being more present to um to in individuals on the first time they're going to a meetup. You know, trying to be more friendly and welcoming on a human level. And um, we'll try and make sure we get a link to that blog um, put in yeah. the show notes as well. Uh, Gina, you also work for diversity and inclusion at Nonfocus. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Absolutely. So the disc committee at present is working in three broad. Uh, thematic areas. I would say the first one is what we're calling assessment. So speaking of Rashma's blog, one of the big challenges that we face as a community to work on these issues is if we want to be data-driven, then we need the data. But there's just not very much, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, so right. it's quite difficult. Um, to know, you know, which sort of levers to push if, if there's not a lot to tell you, you know, where you should be aimed at. Um, so that committee is working on a few things. We're trying to develop a uh, somewhat standardized uh, post-event survey for the PyData Regional. Yeah, that's 
and understand, you know, whether folks who identify as coming from an underrepresented uh, group are having a different experience than those who don't. Some mm. of the challenges there right now is just response rate. It's hard to say anything meaningful on the basis of the response rate. Um, so we're, people are just walking out the door, they're not, they're not completing the survey, is that what you mean? Right, so at present it's sent as a follow-up, and so not that many people are choosing to fill it out. So we're thinking okay. about ways of maybe incentivizing that and <laughs> work on that issue. Um, Something we've definitely identified before when we've seen the meetup group and by kind of looking at the list and looking at who's turned up, we thought it's not a very diverse mm -hmm. group, but without wanting to pry and ask individual people, it's very awkward to know what the data could be, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's the other part is we when we're thinking about, okay, well, one of our challenges is we don't have data, we need to collect it. Well then, mm -hmm. how can we collect it in a way that is both ethical and sensitive, right? This is, I think yeah. it's pretty alienating to have someone <laughs> say like, hey, you seem like you probably are, you know, could count towards our diversity quota. <laughs> so we definitely yeah. don't, don't want to do that, right? Yeah, um, well, it was, um, it just reminded me of uh, one of the meetups I used to go to in DC. It was a data meetup and um, they would have these weird polls at the beginning of each meetup. So they'd have uh, a series of um, like massive buttons in a question and you'd hit like the left button or the right button and answer to each question. So, um, and that was like, as you walk into the event. So that could be a, a different fun way of collecting data. It wouldn't yeah. be very complete for each meetup, but I mean, it's a different way of going about it maybe. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a lot of room for creativity and it's certainly possible to do this. I think I just wanted to, flag that it does require some thought about how you're going to go about gathering your data yeah. and then you know we can kind of go down the rabbit hole of the responsibility of what you do now that you've collected that data set and right. what have you so it, there is quite a lot to think about in that assessment piece yeah we've got gdpr yeah as well. so, um yeah we've got more lots to consider mm -hmm. Meetup allows you to ask one question when someone attends. It's normally used for dietary requirements or something like that. Uh, kind of similar to this button thing Jennifer's talking about, where we ask something like, how long have you used Python? Or what is the main language you use at work? Or something like that. But obviously, there's, there's the whole sensitive questions. At what point do the questions become too sensitive to start asking somebody there? So it, it, you know, that's our attempt at it so far. So it sounds like what you're working on will actually be really useful for us. Because we're still trying to figure out who our community even is. We've, we've not got much idea yet. Well, to be honest, that's the, the other side of the coin. Um, I think it's something that makes my position quite challenging, which is how to think about measuring and then working on diversity in open source communities. Because it's not clear to me, at least, how you would draw a boundary in order to clearly identify who counts as belonging to a particular community or not, when yeah. so much of open source is all digital, right? So you've got people from all over the world. And so if you sort of metaphorically take all those people and put them into a room together, what does diversity mean there? You know, are you thinking <laughs> right. about nationality or it's just, I think it can be so contextual and cultural. It's, it's a very tricky sort of problem 
in my view, uh, coming at it from the open source side of things. Mm. Yeah. So that's yeah. just one. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Just one. Yeah. So that's one of the areas we're working on. Um, those folks working on that group are also trying to collect just the existing research that they can find, basically sort of a, a bibliography, uh, if you will, just to know, okay, well, what kind of work has been done and can we refer to and not have to sort of start from scratch or, or reinvent the wheel. Yeah, and I then, I think that's a really good point. And um, the last thing you uh, everyone wants to be doing is starting from scratch and um, every every different meetup across the world for every different project. And there's an awful lot of different perspectives that people aren't going to think of. It's going to be, you know, it's, it's going to come from different uh, perspectives to think of what the issues are. So having a set of ideas that people can, um, you know, take actions on immediately with some confidence that they're doing good rather than worrying about what comes, what side effects they might have. That people, you know, other people have thought hard about it. I think is very reassuring. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a great tangent actually to one of the other projects that the committee is overseeing and working on. Um, with some grant support from the Moore Foundation, we've put together what we're calling the Discover Cookbook. So it's it'll be a good test if I can remember what the acronym is. <laughs> uh, the Diverse and Inclusive uh, Communities and Organizations Essential Values and Overall Nope, I was close. <laughs> I, can't, I can't spell it out of my head. If you go look at it, it will tell you what it stands for. Uh, I, I guess that's the nature of acronyms is you forget what <laughs> the is. But the point being, we have this um, initiative supported by the Moore Foundation that we put together called the Discover Cookbook, which is essentially a best practices guide for putting together uh, largely technology-focused uh, conferences and events. So if you'd like your regional PyData conference, for example, to be a place that is welcoming and takes into account people's different needs and backgrounds, then you could go to the Discover Cookbook and find a variety of suggestions of ways that you can make your event a place that everyone would want to be. Um, and so we have initially created and hosted that cookbook on GitHub because that is really a very comfortable place for our key audience. Um, and now we're in the phase where we're building out a web page or website version of the cookbook so that it can be accessible to a broader audience of people who, you know, aren't sure about how to navigate a GitHub repo. Right. So, um, so it's really great. I definitely encourage everyone to check out. I can, you know, we can give you the link for the show notes. Yeah, um, and their thing that I like about it are the recommendations are kind of um, highlighted in two, uh, two ways. One is with a little apple emoji for the low hanging fruit, which are, oh, things, nice. yeah, which are <laughs> things that you can do that 
are relatively easy to implement and have a, a relatively high impact. And then the other is little green, little green checkbox to indicate things that take a little more effort, but um, are really helpful. So you can kind of choose a, maybe a, a handful of your green checks um, to implement for your event. And as many of those red apples as possible, I think uh, will get you a long way down that path. Um, so that's a big area that we're working on. We also have a group working on community outreach. Um, so it's a fairly new group. So the fairly, uh, it's a fairly new group. So the first thing that they've done is to host a Jupiter hackathon in New York city. Um, I guess just a few weeks ago now. And we're hoping to have a blog post out about that soon um, on how it went, but basically focused on bringing in programmers from underrepresented backgrounds and helping teach them about how to get involved in contributing to open source. And then uh, the third group that we have been, um, the third area that we've been working on in the committee is our code of conduct. So the NumFocus code of conduct, which is also the PyData code of conduct, recently went through a round of revisions uh, just to clarify a few things about what our process is and who is responsible for handling uh, reports. And then also trying to make it a friendlier document uh, to navigate so you can quickly find the information that you're looking for. We'll continue working on that by building out uh, more robust internal processes and um, continuing to find ways to communicate out to everyone in our community how they can uh, best implement and uphold our code of conduct. Um, what can people, what can our listeners do to be more welcoming and inclusive when they go to the next, their next PyDev event? Well, I would say whether you are comfortable in an extroverted mode or not, um, try and push yourself just to introduce yourself. Go say hi to someone new, someone you've never met before. Um, particularly if you're someone who feels a strong sense of belonging at your local PyData group, um, you're probably a repeat member attendee. Um, go welcome someone new. Go welcome someone who seems like they'd probably have a different life experience or background than yourself. Um, bring someone with you, right? So if you are an active member of your local PyData, maybe there's someone in your network uh, that you could reach out to invite to come to the next event. So I think just that basic level of making sure that it doesn't feel insular, and that there's constantly efforts to bring in new folks um, is a really nice just first start. Yeah, good advice. Nice. Yeah. So along those same lines, what do you think are the biggest challenges to making Meetup and the tech community more uh, in general more inclusive? This is a good and somewhat difficult question. <laughs> Um, okay, I'll say this. I hear a lot of focus on the pipeline, which yeah. is to say that 
a lot of people believe, and there is some good evidence to suggest that the folks who are early on choosing to learn computer science or programming or data science skills and select that area for their career um, is overly homogenous. And so a lot of attention is put on, for example, uh, supporting programs that teach young girls how to code. I think that's wonderful. Absolutely, we should diversify the pipeline more than it already is. That being said, there's also strong evidence to show that people from underrepresented backgrounds and identities are leaving technology and these areas um, around mid-career, so they don't really have, there's a much smaller population of those folks who sticks around to make it into senior positions and be seen as role models that would then further draw in more people. So there is a cultural challenge, I think, around retaining people in the community. And because of that, I think it can be sensitive, I think, to bring up certain things that feel like maybe they're um, just small matters that people shouldn't get upset about or be hypersensitive. Um, but I think that there are, you know, little things in the community that can have an outsized negative impact. Um, there's been a lot of conversation on this in a variety of areas. The Stack Overflow community, for example, has gone through a lot of tumult over this um, somewhat recently in terms of what are the community norms for how questions are handled, right? So there, again, is some evidence that uh, women, for example, just tend not to go and participate on Stack Overflow because they are rightly nervous about the reception that they would receive. Um, there is some evidence for example, again, just focused on women, that uh, their uh, pull requests are less likely to be merged and receive a greater sort of scrutiny than others. So it's very sort of deep level psychological and cultural things, which I think is a really big challenge because it's hard, I think, sometimes for people to see why they need to change something that they are either very attached to or don't, don't see as that big of a deal, right? So, oh, I've told, I've told you that, uh, how do I put this? Oh, I made, I made a joke about, you know, one language being very terrible as a compared to another language. And then someone else sees that and feels like, oh, I'm, I've been judged. That's not, you know, a community that I want to be part of because I'm afraid that I'll be 
you know, mocked for using this other language or something along those lines. So it can feel trivial, but I think just really trying to focus on best intent and positivity, uh, you know, that gratitude piece, I think in open source is so important. It's very easy for people to have a kind of a sense of entitlement, sadly. Um, it's, it's a work in progress that everyone's got to participate in. Yeah, and not just in tech, it's a cultural thing across our society. Um, there's an awful lot of times when people in the past in certain work environments found it fine to be, um, I guess, aggressive in a friendly way. Um, and when that happens within a small private group of friends, that's very different to happening on a public forum like, um, like Stack Overflow, for example, or the Linux uh, mailing lists. Um, so I don't know how you translate working practices from 50 years ago when everyone was in the same place to working practices um, now when people are remotely distributed across the world and everyone can see what you wrote 10 years ago on a forum post. Um, yeah. It's important we do actually recognize the problem and start thinking about how we how we want to convey our messages so yeah now i'm rambling <laughs> <laughs> well i i actually think that's a really great point this is sort of an area that i'm really interested in thinking about um i think it's pretty clear that human beings haven't got much of a grasp yet on how to communicate digitally because it just seems to devolve so quickly so yeah i think that's a big challenge let's let's go back to talking about numfocus for a little bit so what can people do in order to contribute to numfocus and then how are those contributions used by numfocus i know recently there was a small developer grant that was won by a couple of small libraries uh, so i know it's a scale of like large big projects and there's a donation drive as well in October, I think. Yeah. I, so. I think it's sorry, I think it fits in something you mentioned just at the end there, Gina, yeah. about people contributing to open source. Because mm. I know there's been a few maintainers of big libraries who have not complained isn't the right word, but highlighted the issues. Um I know Web McKinney's had quite yeah. a few rants um on that Twitter basically me. complaining that people are getting a lot of value or large organizations are getting a lot of value out of and, and other open source projects and, and putting the same amount of work back in. Um, you know, I've seen some slides, I think NumPy is maintained by less than, fewer than 10 um, individual contributors who are paid full time. Um, yes, so yes. <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really glad to receive this question. Um, I, I want to kind of zoom out just briefly before I directly get to answering it, um, which is to talk about why contributing back is so important and why it has sort of evolved into um, an existential level issue for open source software packages. Um, the, uh, the popularity of the tools, PyData tools, for example, you know, how many millions of people use pandas, um, or NumPy does not actually translate into strong support for those tools, mm. which is perplexing and frustrating, I think, <laughs> because there are plenty of for-profit organizations out there that are creating quite a lot of 
value and money on the basis of using those tools. Um, so the, first of all, I think one of the challenges that the community faces and that NumFocus is trying to find ways to work on is that there's just a misconception or a lack of understanding, just, just an ignorance, not in a malicious way, but just an ignorance around the fact that these open source projects are not particularly well supported. Um, so it's usually news to folks, right? <laughs> that, for example, NumPy only has a small handful of full-time paid developers, and even that is relatively recent mm -hmm. grant funding. Um, so everyone's sort of like, oh my gosh, I am so surprised to hear that. And you would think that millions of people using these tools would mean that those millions of people could contribute back. Um, I think it is a glorious dream for NumFocus that, you know, every person who, you know, downloads one of our packages uh, or our PyData package for the purpose of this podcast um, could contribute, you know, a dollar. And then we'd be um, millions of dollars you know, more sustainable organization than we are now. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not what people do. Um, and the truth of the matter is that no one yet seems to have solved the question of sustainability for open source. I think there's a variety of uh, tacks and strategies there. The existence of NumFocus as a nonprofit entity is one among many. Um, there are a lot of effort, other efforts I'm you know, sure folks are aware of. And so the non-focus approach is to try to call upon, I think, the sense of um, the sense of wanting to do the right thing by these projects, both from individual users and corporations that make quite a lot of money because of these projects. So NumFocus tries to provide a means to direct funding to the projects for their use in a way that contributes to their long-term sustainability and um, just happy users. Uh, the small grants program that you mentioned is one of those ways. We take primarily the funds that come in from individuals uh, as opposed to corporate sponsors and make that money available in the form of small grants around $3,000 to the projects for a variety of types of work. Um, it's usually opportunities for developers to get together in person um, for sprints or sometimes tutorials. It's um, paying contractors to build out certain features or um, bug fixes, whatever the case may be. Uh, it's opportunities to um, attend events or give workshops about the project. So there's quite, an, and even actually just help us improve our website, right? So <laughs> we can get people the information that they need better. So we have a variety of ways that the projects have chosen to use those funds and you can read about them on the NumFocus blog. Uh, 
in addition, giving money to NumFocus helps the projects because the day-to-day -day operations of NumFocus are in support of the projects. My colleague, who is our pro project's finance manager, for example, uh, spends essentially all of her time <laughs> doing, you know, uh, invoices and accounts payable and accounts uh, received and taxes and accounting and all of you know those kinds of things on behalf of the projects and so that also is supporting their activities even though in some sense it's not directly turning over money to them to spend how they want um, so there are a lot of ways in which the activities on NumFocus are designed to support the advancement of the projects and I think in order for people who are listeners to give back, your money is very appreciated and valued at NumFocus. Please consider becoming a supporting or sustaining member. Uh, sustaining members make scheduled donations, so monthly or quarterly or annually. Uh, currently, we have just over 200 sustaining members. Thank you all so much if you're listening. Uh, you also can contribute back to the projects with your time. I think uh, learning how to become a contributor of code to solve small bug fixes when you're a beginner. Uh, many times projects have tagged issues on their repos as being beginner friendly. So it's an easy way to just wade in. Um, that's absolutely valuable. And then talk to your employer, you know, do you work someplace where you are using the tools day in and day out? What is your employer doing to support those tools? So we have a corporate sponsorship program at NumFocus that can come in at a variety of levels um, from large, you know, multinational orgs um, to small startups who participate under our emerging leader corporate sponsor program. So I think, you know, your time, your money, your connections, those are all things that you can leverage in support of NumFocus and the mission and the advancement of those projects. Awesome. Yeah, and the sustaining members, um, that's helpful because it allows you to better budget your money, doesn't it? Rather than the one-off payments. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, it's easy to sign up. You could, you know, ask yourself, I suppose, like, hey, what would I, what would I pay? <laughs> you know, if I had to pay for these tools that I just pip install or con install um, without, you know, much friction, hopefully. Uh, so, you know, 20 bucks a month, five bucks a month, every little bit helps. Uh, it really, it really does all add up. And above and beyond the dollar figure, having those supporting and sustaining members is really a way of showing that a community has the backs of the people who are working on those projects, largely on a volunteer basis. Yeah, definitely. Is there um, any, uh, any kind of frameworks or templates you've got for how we can help persuade our employers to, you know, to, to kick in a little bit? Yeah, um, if you go to our website, there is uh, what we call the Corporate Sponsor Prospectus, which is just a PDF that tries to lay out briefly um, the long story that I've just told you about sustainability challenges for these projects and the role of NumFocus in supporting them. 
So you can use that as um, a sort of visual aid, I suppose, <laughs> when going to talk about why it's important uh, for companies to throw their support behind these open source tools. Yeah, definitely. We'll, uh, we'll make sure to link out there because, yeah, like you say, a lot of these organizations are getting a lot of value from it. So it'd be good if they help. So you've talked a lot about, um, a bit about some of the projects that NumFocus supports, uh, Pandas and NumPy. Um, what are some of the other projects that you support? Um, there are quite a few. I think we're up to 25 and a few more coming down the pipe. Um, I think it's sort of a, it would be fun to have a, a sort of blindfold quiz of all the NumFocus staff of how many projects we could name that could support. <laughs> Can you get them all? Um, I think the newest one, I'm going to go out on a limb and say is Condaforge. So that's one of okay, our newest I use projects. That. Yeah. Um, also among our newer projects is Bouquet for interactive visualization. Awesome. Um, Matplotlib, which I know many people have a love-hate relationship with, but which is <laughs> absolutely <laughs> core. <laughs> um, <laughs> Project Jupiter, so that's you know, one of our really big ones. Yeah, I love that one um, too. Can, yeah. Um, can you explain a little bit about what Condaforge actually is? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I had to ask them that myself when they came on. I should say, I don't know if it's a, how much of it's of interest, but um, it's very interesting to me working at NumFocus because I am surrounded on a daily basis by computer programmers and scientists. And I am a trained humanist. So um, my PhD is in philosophy. And so I, I sort of get a big kick out of in the communications director role, trying to translate stories amongst different communities and uh, try to find the wider audience for what we're doing at Dumb Focus. So that being said, whenever new projects come on, um, I really enjoy getting to chat with them and say, so um, I know a little bit, but not a lot. What does your project do? <laughs> um, so Condaforge uh, helps to build and distribute software packages, um, particularly the tricky ones that kind of come up in scientific computing. So uh, each package has its own maintainers and anyone can join them. Um, and then Condaforge is fully automated so that maintainers can build packages for systems uh, like Windows or Mac that they don't own and keep them up to date and just generally good quality. Um, and if, it, if the most recent sponsor project is not Condaforge, then it's probably Jump, which is an optimization package built in the Julia language. Uh, which is pretty cool. So they, um, I think, started out of MIT. Um, but they, uh, they've got a whole bunch of different kind of interesting applications um, to the problems. There's some very cool write-ups uh, and some controversy, actually, about an optimization using Jump 
for school bus routes in the city of Boston. Um, and I think you can just pop that into your internet browser and find some really interesting articles about why that was attempted and what the result was and how it was received by the community and where the pushback was and who the pushback was from. So it, I think it was kind of an interesting example of how you can take an algorithm and solve a particular problem beautifully uh, from sort of a mathematical point of view, but it does not at all help you to solve the social issues that are touched upon <laughs> by that yeah. problem. Um, um, how we can be... So, you know, I've listed a bunch of Python tools. We did mention the other languages and uh, sort of efforts that are within our mission. So uh, I will, wanted to call out a few of those projects. Um, our Open Sci is one of our projects. They do an outstanding job with a peer review system for our packages. Um, and it's really cool. We have, I think, some older posts on the blog about how and why they do it. Um, and just generally our really awesome folks uh, supporting the our data science community. We have a project called Quant Econ, which is designed to help educate economists about quantitative methods. Um, they have a Nobel laureate on their uh, project leadership, which is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> and they have a, a sort of series of uh, a library kind of archive of lectures. Um, and then they just launched, uh, I think, a set of notebooks. So some really neat stuff coming out of Quant Econ. We also have a project called Open Journals, which is the umbrella for the Journal of Open Source Software and the Journal of um, Open Source Education. And I think potentially some more that will bloom um, in that area. So that's designed to help people who are writing scientific software to receive career credit in the form of a publication. So that also is kind of in that area of, well, let's do peer review of code and then it results in, you know, your your published article, which is which is effectively the software that you've written. Um, so there's a lot of cool stuff like that. There's also really interesting domain-specific packages. Um, AstroPy, for example, for astronomers. Um, Canteras, one of our newer projects, it does uh, really cool stuff having to do with problems in thermodynamics. So it's, it's really neat, I think, to me, uh, just to see how many areas NumFocus touches within mm. science um, beyond just, uh, you know, what you might think broadly of as data science, but also particular scientific domains. So it's pretty cool. Definitely. Um, yeah, so what, do you, what advice would you give to anyone uh, organizing a tech meetup who would like to make it more inclusive? I think to start with, take a look at your organizing team. Because uh, if you can have folks on the organizing team to make sure that you've got diverse identities and experiences and perspectives represented, that's going to go a really long way. Um, it also helps to show your attendees that, you know, there are different kinds of people represented in the leadership, and I think that's very powerful. Um, but to be honest, a lot of the recommendations that are in the Discover cookbook 
that are more kind of focused on discrete uh, events or conferences, nevertheless are really applicable even to kind of your regular meetups. So um, to take a, a single example, you might ask yourself whether your venue and how you've set up the venue uh, is particularly accessible for people who you know might have mobility restrictions, for example, or mm. um, are hard of hearing, right? So do you make sure that folks have a microphone? Um, so just, yeah, there's, I think, all kinds of different ways that you know you can think about how are you setting up your event to make it as welcoming and inclusive as possible and uh, I guess just to to plug the cookbook there are a lot of great recommendations in there but if you had to just pick one thing if I had to pick one thing I would say diversify your organizing committee because then you can draw upon their knowledge and experience from there to make sure everything else that you're doing um, is going to be, you know, inclusive for all kinds of people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, regarding the, the hearing, um, I was very excited to see the other day, I think it was a tweet or something about um, Google Slides now have the option to add um, uh, captioning to the slides. Nice. Um, I think it's a limited release, so I, I immediately went to a slide deck and tried to find this button, but I couldn't find it, so I don't know if it's, it's fully rolled out, but um, it should be like a live transcription of the speaker. Um, that's something I've got to look up again. I think I shared it with you guys before. Possibly. We'll find an article about it and link it. Yeah, but that, that's something that we've been um, looking into as well, because a, a lot of the, a lot of um, things that you can do to make it more inclusive benefits everybody. And I think people oh, yeah. forget that. Having, it, having um, captioning on slides helps everyone, if you're at the back of the room, or um, if you just prefer to read, or if you're hard of hearing. So, Tini, you've alluded to your background as a humanist. How did you get involved in non-focus? Yeah, um, so I started out as an academic, I mentioned I, I did a philosophy PhD with a focus in ethics and social philosophy, and I, I earned a certificate in women's studies, which is sort of like getting a minor, but in graduate school. And uh, after graduate school, I wound up um, at the Women's Center at Harvard, working with students in the college there, and I was there uh, directing the Women's Center for four years. And then I decided that I wanted to completely shake up my life. So I left Boston. I moved uh, to Austin. I grew up in Texas, so it's kind of going home. Most of my family is around here now. And I networked my way to a job at a technology startup in the commercial insurance area <laughs> of all things and just wearing about five different hats and uh as as tends to happen it, i now know in the startup space um that runway started to uh look pretty short and so there was a round of layoffs and i was included and 
that was um, pretty shocking to me, kind of set me back on my heels. And then everyone said, oh, that's really normal in startup life. And I said, well, I wish someone had told me. (laughs) 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 But, you know, dust yourself off, keep going. Um, And so, again, I was kind of just going around and trying to talk to people because at this point I had probably the weirdest resume that I've ever had, um, which was, you know, looking like, uh, someone in higher education, either teaching or administration, and then this one year kind of doing a bunch of stuff for a tech startup. So uh, very fortunately, I connected actually with Travis Oliphant, um, who at the time was CEO of Continuum Analytics, now Anaconda. And I said, hey, uh, I hear you're hiring. Do you have anything available that might be a fit for someone with my skills? And he said, yeah, let me set you up with um, conversations with a few people. And actually also um, let me set a meeting for you uh, with my friend Leah Seidlin. And Leah is the executive director of Gum Focus. And at the time, this was in 2015, um, she had been the only full-time employee at NumFocus, so kind of running a one-woman show uh, since 2012 and was sorely in need of additional help. And so I talked to her, learned about the org and you know, what the mission was and what they were doing and thought, this sounds really cool. And so it's kind of, you know, that was kind of that. <laughs> so I've come on uh, and been with the organization for, I guess, about three years. And I think I was, I felt very fortunate because I felt like it meant that my experience in the academic realm and the industry side both got to be of use because NumFocus obviously, I think, supports tools that are used broadly in industry context and also very broadly in academic research context. So it's been pretty cool. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think it's always interesting to see how people get to their current roles because a lot of times the assumption is that you know you go through school, you do a, a computer science degree and then you sort of work your way up from there. But um, it's it's rarely like that. There's people from all realms of life end up in in tech and that's what we need we need more of that yeah i've met so many people who got into technology in ways other than getting a computer science degree um i get a big kick out of talking to uh sort of we call them uh alt ac or post ac meaning uh people who did things with their PhDs other than become professors. (laughs) And so I get a big kick out of talking to other humanists who left the academy. Um, There's someone I know who got a classics degree, then became uh, the lead lead technology for a local um, news organization and now is in uh, a senior UX researcher uh, at a major job search site. So, It's just so cool and interesting, I think, like the paths that people take. And I'm learning that more often than not, people have a winding career path like myself. And I think the folks who kind of go straight through in a way that seems to be very orderly and make a lot of sense are in the minority. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of really interesting and useful skills you learn on the way that you never thought would be useful, but turn out for me. 
Yeah. Uh, if you, I don't know if you've had time to think about um, if you have a hero or someone who does or has inspired you or um, a mentor of any kind that you'd like to tell us about. Yeah, so um, I think always struggle when I receive this question because I feel like I'm a person who takes inspiration from many, many people around me. Um, I think I'll take this opportunity to sort of hold up someone in the numb focus community who I find very inspiring um, and honestly a little bit intimidating. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. And that is Safia Abdallah. She mm -hmm. is one of the project leaders for Interact, which is a numb focus sponsored project. Um, it's essentially Jupyter notebooks on the desktop. I'm sure someone will object to my description, but that's how I understand it. Um, and when I met Safia, I want to say that she was a freshman or a sophomore in university. And I was just blown away when I learned this because she is so accomplished um, at such a young age, she, I believe, has her own startup now, in addition to her contributions to Interact. Um, she was instrumental in uh, putting together the inaugural PyData event uh, in Chicago a couple of oh, years wow. back. And um, I just feel like is sort of a, a force and a powerhouse and, you know, anything that she gets involved in is about to receive just a huge influx of energy and, you know, be advanced, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, she's someone that I, I find uh, very inspiring. Good. Okay, thank you very much, Gina, for being on the first Pi Data Manchester podcast. It was a pleasure. Uh, we've learned a lot. Thank yes. you. Bye. 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 Thanks so much to Gina for taking the time out of her day to speak with us. Thank you to NumFocus for supporting PyData as a whole and for sponsoring our meetup page. Yeah, definitely. Our next meetup is going to be a holiday social, uh, which will be announced soon on meetup. Um, and after that, in January, we're going to have a show and tell where you can bring your data projects and tell us all about them for about five minutes um so we're, we're planning on having a lot of show and tells yeah it's i'm going to be showing off my new website because i had an old website that was very boring very businessy it was like a cv i replaced it with something really cool really like old 90s style website just for fun because i think programming should be about fun not about money yeah Sure. And uh, these other guys don't want to commit to what they're going to show, but I'm sure oh. it'll be interesting. <laughs> well, I'm going to, I'm going to, well, I'm thinking about playing around with Tensor, uh, TensorFlow. There's an awful lot of cool stuff around the, um, yeah, around people that have been bringing out now. TensorFlow validation, TensorFlow serving, stuff like that. Mm. And I really haven't had to play around with TensorFlow for probably more than a year, and I've definitely never done anything in production, so yeah. I kind of feel like I want to get something with that. I've only ever used TensorFlow via Keras. Mm. Well, I believe that um, the, there's now a uh, TensorFlow.keras interface, oh, right. which seems like it would make the whole thing much easier. Oh, cool. Um, I'm thinking about, but not committing, um, exploring Julia, 
Um, I'm not sure if it's something that I could use in my work, but I'm sort of curious to see uh, how it's different from Python. And another thing I'm interested in looking at, which I'm not committing to, is <laughs> agent-based modeling. Ooh. Yeah, so a friend of mine in DC, Jackie Cazal, she is one of the authors of Mesa, Mesa? M-E-S-A, which is an agent-based modeling Python thing. Similar to SymPy? No, no, sorry, that's not I think, that. I think it... SymPy's discrete event simulation for Python. Yeah. Which I've heard is used in some event agent-based modeling. Might yeah, be, I might I think be it's related. Um, that's come up in my searches as well. But yeah, Mesa is Mesa, Mesa. It looks really cool. So check it out. It's on, it's on GitHub. And the documentation seems really nice. And we'll put um, a link up to it. Yeah. So if you're interested in seeing what we're doing soon, follow us on Twitter. That's at PyDataMCR. Uh, normally the pinned tweet at the top will always be the next upcoming event. Also follow us on Meetup if you want those direct emails into your inbox with that event. And we have a Slack community as well that's in our description on Twitter. So there's a little link you can click there. There's about 70 people already and growing. So come join. Thank you very much for listening to the first PyData Manchester podcast. Bye. 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 <laughs>